It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at CBOC.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at CBOC.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. If you are in or getting into the industrial organizational psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking for support to jumpstart your career, blaze your IO path, and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. If you're a more established IO practitioner, check out our expert membership to showcase your expertise, build your brand, and be part of our initiatives. Do you lead a university's IO or applied IO psychology program? Go to cboc.com, get in touch to partner with us to build your program's brand and get solid real world support for your students. Let us do the heavy lifting for their engagement and experiences. And businesses, get in touch. We've got the bank of experts you need for coaching, consultation, and program development and execution. Please subscribe to the podcast because it helps us out and it helps the field of IO. Also, today, we have Tom Bradshaw with us, a voice and speech coach and a damn good actor too. He is the official voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, everyone, and welcome to our weekly gathering of IOs, HRs, recruiters, and one actor, where we try to solve the problems of the business world with compassion and caring. I think Jeremy is a good way to put it. Um, (laughs) Speaking of which, um, we're doing uh, a little bit of work today. I, I think we're doing some spring cleaning. Is that right? <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> so we're yeah, we're talking about. So that's our March theme is is spring cleaning in the workplace, and we have some interesting topics. So today, today was one of the harder, one of the more difficult ones. So our topic specifically is refreshing outdated par- processes, and every now, Tom, sometimes it's oh my gosh, it was so easy to find some golden nuggets. Today was a little bit more difficult. Because it was more about looking into like what goes into refreshing these processes. I did find what I think is a golden nugget, but I also want to refer people to some of the things that are important when you're talking about how do you get into an organization and refresh. So I want to refer people to some previous episodes because I think they're applicable because you're looking at you're we're looking at buy-in and a lot of other things. So for the audience, episode 90 of our work cookie podcast making creativity happen, episode 101, how to get buy-in, episode 104, re-energizing your work environment, episode 116, building influence at work, and then episode 118, striving to become a thought leader in the workplace. So those those are other um, episodes that I think will play well with our topic today. And specifically, we've got them posted up in the chat, and I believe, yep, I actually just did a quick copy and paste for the new, the people that just joined. We've got a a couple of references that we're going to use, and there's one that we're going to start out and we're going to focus on. This one is by Charles Wasson, and the title of it is, (laughs) it's a little, it's a little, it's a complicated read, but we're going to break it down. The title is SE Management 
is not SE core competency. Time to shift this outdated 60-year-old paradigm. The reason I chose this was there were slim pickings. And I actually, when I started to dig into this particular one, and I'm going to actually share my screen here because this is publicly available. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. I found some really good nuggets in here about changing the paradigm of what we're looking at, why things are done the old way, and how we can look at these updated processes. Now, this particular article is very specific to engineering and looking at how engineering paradigms, all of the textbooks, all of the standard processes can be dated back a lot until it started in really the 50s, as you can see here on the screen. And we're looking at the original focus is always, will the system work? Will it be a fit for the purpose? And then it shifted to, did we follow the processes? So here was the problem. The projects, it started back in the 50s when you had more management by control. And so the, what they started to do was correct things that were going wrong by correcting the management problem, but they neglected the engineering question. And we can make it the engineering question, the creativity question, the refreshing processes question. And that became quite a big issue. Yes, you need th these initiatives, these processes, they, they're necessary because there has to be standardized processes, but they're often insufficient because they really address management oversight instead of a technical solution. I'll come back to the beginning of this, but I want to jump down to the bottom here to some things I found pretty interesting, which is, this is, <laughs> this is where it starts, right? So the managers would plan and organize and they staffed, they directed, they did a lot of control of their subordinates. In other words, in this particular study, which was a case study, meaning qualitative, they did interviews, uh, engineers and scientists. And we look at this, management considered the engineers and scientists to be lively and unruly. Engineers were always late, over budget, failed systems. So what they had to do, because there was this clash between the management and the engineers, likely, right? Management said, we're losing control. We need more control. And what we need to do is we need to put these systems into, play, into place so that we can control what the engineers are doing. The problem is that when in the engineers, uh, they would live within these systems, that's fine, but they're also creative and engineers are innovative by nature. So they're creating these new technologies and these new processes that were quite hard. They're quite difficult to even explain to management. So management had a hard time keeping up. So then they create more standardized rules, codification, all these different things, because they're worried about more of the, the hierarchy and the staffing and the organizing and the directing. And then there's more of a gap be between what could be new processes, new technologies, because engineers uh, weren't able to really communicate. So they're living in their own bubble, lack of communication, management's feeling a loss of control. And we can see how that plays with why uh, we can have these outdated processes in the organization. So while a, a difficult read, it's an, it's an engineering uh, study, a study about engineering and processes, there are some golden nuggets that are very applicable for today. So even though, you know, that article focuses on technology and yeah, I can see <laughs> here's the, here's the great scenario. Yeah. The, the engineers are outgrowing their leadership because they're adopting all this new technology, but 
can't we also say that these are people skills issues as well that that, that we're lacking, just like technology develops and change, people skills themselves are changing as well. And like right now, as I look out in the world, I see a lot of employees who want to embrace these new changes, but a lot of leadership who's very hesitant because they don't know what it's about or simply because they have to make a change. And you know what we've been doing since the 1960s work. So, you know, why should we change it? So that's interesting. And you have a, again, Tom and I don't prepare, we don't plan for these things, but that's an interesting, it's the way we've always done it. I've got a good example here with an experiment with with monkeys. That's likely not a real experiment, but it provides a good illustration of that. And that is from, so if you're looking at the, the reference that we have, that's the link where it says, pardon me for a second, Tired of outdated processes in your organization. Here's a step-by-step guide to change and remove them. So I'm going to, I'm going to read this because I think it's I think it's a, it's an interesting perspective. So the question is, why would a monkey not go after a bunch of animals placed within his reach? So picture this: an experimenter puts five monkeys in a cage. High up on top of the cage is a bunch of bananas. Underneath the bananas is a ladder. The monkeys immediately spot the bananas, and one begins to climb the ladder. As he does, however, the experimenter meanly, I might add, sprays him with a stream of cold water and then proceeds to spray the other monkeys. The monkey on the ladder scrambles off and all five monkeys sit on the floor, wet, cold, and bewildered. Soon, though, the temptation of the bananas is too great. Another monkey begins to climb the ladder. Again, the experimenter sprays the ambitious monkey with cold water and all the monkeys, other monkeys as well. When a third monkey tries to climb the ladder, the other monkeys, wanting to avoid the cold spray, pull him off the ladder and beat him. Now, the experimenter removes one monkey and puts a new monkey into the cage. Spotting the new bananas, the new monkey, who's never been sprayed, climbs the ladder, and the other monkeys pull him off and beat him because they don't want to get sprayed. Here's where it gets interesting. The experimenter removes a second one of the original monkeys from the cage and replaces him with a new monkey. Again, the new monkey begins to climb the ladder and the other monkeys pull him off and beat him, including the monkey who has never been sprayed. Very soon, all the monkeys have been replaced, monkeys who have never been sprayed, and none of them go after the bananas. The researchers hypothesize if they were to ask the monkeys why they don't go for the the bananas, they'd answer because it's always been done that way. They don't real, none of them have been sprayed. None of them know that there is a danger of being sprayed. It's just never, it's just always been done that way that you don't go for the bananas, even though things might have changed. Maybe the experiment changed. Maybe uh, they decided to reward them instead of uh, punish them, but they'll never know because it's always been done that way. So they're not going to try new things. You know, as a creative, I've been a monkey a lot, (laughs) you know, going into different organizations and facing that blockage of, well, it's a great idea, but we don't do it that way. And then it leaves me in a position going, yeah. And how is that old way working for you? And it's usually not very well. So how do we make that shift? That's so in this particular, I'm going to share my screen again. It's interesting because what what the author's done is create a little bit of a thing here with uh, the questions that can be asked and when it really comes down to what it needs to. So 
picture this, you know, engineering firm goes into a potential client and says, all right, new client, new customer, we have all the documented processes. We have this certification. Our personnel have MSs or PhDs in this particular engineering, et cetera, et cetera. And then the client simply asks, says, okay, that's fine. You have all this in place, all the processes in the world, but why do your projects continue to exhibit technical compliance, cost schedule, and risk performance issues? So, and then it all goes back. And that's why I think it's so important to look at some of those previous podcasts because we're looking at buy-in. We're looking at what could be better. We're visioning out what could create a better tomorrow for our processes. How can we start to think of what are the challenging questions that our clients might ask us and how, how will we, um, you know, thinking out, right? Three years from now, what are the most challenging questions a client would ask us? And how do we look back at what our processes are and how we are, whether it's staffing, whether it's how we're being innovative and creative, how will we attend to those potential challenges now so that when it comes, because it's often, you know, it's not a matter of when, if it's a matter of when, what can we do to prepare now? But there's a lot of people working in office because like I can I can really see this and maybe maybe Maria has some answers for me uh, and we'll go to you right away, Maria. But this is the challenge that I see all over the place are people going in and trying to have those conversations. But leadership, when they start to hear those things, it's it's a little bit like, wow, that sounds like a lot of work. And, and you know, I'm, I'm busy as it is. And, and so are you. So while this is a great idea you know, we don't have the staff to implement this or start looking at these things. So Maria, you got any advice for me? I I probably have more questions, Jeremy, to be (laughs) honest with you, but, you know, so I think about um, project management because that's what we're talking about to a certain degree here that Dr. Jeremy has mentioned, you know, they're working on projects, the projects keep, you know, having these, these problems. I think one of the questions we could ask is IOs is, um, have you ever done a root cause analysis study because rather than you know we've always done it this way um if you go back to a root you know an rca and ask where did it go wrong where did it start to go wrong and what stopped you from acting at that time you know again it goes back to a lot of the lean processes you know um the pdsa you know plan do check and act i mean it's just at some point, somebody has to ask the courageous question of, have you ever stopped to study why it went awry? Not why does it keep going awry? Because clearly they're not, they're going to be too embarrassed to provide an answer because it's always going to come back to, you're telling me this is my fault. You know, so I think doing doing more of an, you know, of a study, if you will, you know, recommending, well, let's do this study together. You're the, you're the biggest stakeholders are you because you want to keep these contracts. So let's go back and see where it started to go bad. And let's see what caught, what caused the barrier for us to not do something about it at that time. Tom, I believe you're muted there. That's probably better. Um, So, so let me sort of go around this because I think what Maria is saying is really good and important, but having, you know, directed shows after the show, we always sit down and we have a debrief and it's sometimes challenging, especially if there's been some issues to prevent the finger pointing happening. Well, that was your fault. That was your fault. 
And it's hard sometimes to keep those positive so actually you can learn from them. So, Maria, how do I avoid that? Well, there, the, the next question is, um, before we started the project, were the, all the stakeholders at the table beforehand? And did we ask whether there were any barriers that might come up? I think, you know, in project management, one of the things that we miss is that, you know, that round table at the beginning. Sometimes it's just a PowerPoint that goes to all the key stakeholders. This is what we're going to do. This is going to be a great project. It's going to turn out really well. Nobody stops to ask the question, you know, not in all cases, but in cases when it's falling apart. Um, nobody stops to ask the question, you know, is there anything here that doesn't seem doable? And if not, why? And how can we mitigate that? And is there a thing that goes on? Because I've noticed this where, you know, someone's developing a new project and they're, and they're about to share it and they share it with a select group of people. They keep it close to their chest. And meanwhile, all the people who are really going to get involved don't have a say. Is that going on? Yes. And, and that's where all of those lean processes come in place, right? Because what happens is the, the train gets derailed midpoint and then you end up having to do extra work to mitigate everything that went awry because the, you know, you may not be able to have all of the workers at the table, but you should have somebody representing the group of people who will be doing the work because unfortunately they're told what they need to do, but they don't have the background information as to what's going on. But that's the valid point is that the key stakeholders aren't at the table. Uh, Jeremy, I saw you had your hand up. Right into, I love the synergy we have here, right into what Maria was saying about the root cause analysis. Tom, this is where I'm going to show this. The um, uh, Edmonton Journal, there's an article on healthier communities make for sustainable healthcare in Alberta. But there was a good, I like this, picture this scene. A fleet of ambulances is repeatedly sent to pull people out of a river and rush them to a hospital. But nobody has looked upstream to see why these people are falling into the river in the first place. So, again, root cause, you can keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over. And we, we're, I think businesses, I think it's important for, for, for business uh, leadership to really think about this in terms of how much time are we spending on this problem? What's preventing us from creating a solution? And a lot of times it's, look, the solution is going to be costly. The solution is going to take a lot of time. I think a very simple exercise what leadership can do is sit down and say, <clears throat> excuse me, day to day, month to month, what is this costing us in terms of labor hours, in terms of miscommunication, conflict, reduced quality, et cetera? And over the course of a year, what will that cost us? And then how much would implementing a solution, something maybe we have on the back burner, or at least re-looking at this, how much time will that take and how much will that cost us and simply do a little bit of math? I think that's important. Another analogy that I came across, I can't remember, it's in one of our the resources we have for today, a roadmap, because we look at processes. A roadmap tells us how to get from one place to another, just like a procedure does. But it's the person who is going to determine how safely they drive, exactly which route they take, where they're going to stop, the stops along the way, how they manage traffic, all this, all these kinds of things. That is important because you do need that individual aspect of it and that individual piece. And it also it takes me back to when GPS units first came out. I got my first GPS unit. I think it was. 
I don't know, maybe like 2004 or 2005. It cost over a thousand dollars. It was a Garmin street something. It was great. It was fantastic. But we had to man, but at that time you had to manually update them. So how many times are you're, you're driving and all of a sudden there's just like a streets blocked off or there's construction because it's outdated. It's an outdated procedure. It's an outdated map of what should be done. Now, of course, we don't have that problem because we're on our phones and everything's updated. I mean, there's construction. I mean, you know about it within two seconds. <laughs> you can plan. But without that, again, but that think about what we have now is GPSs. They're continually updated. So we continually know where to go. And how are we and how are organizations, how are organizations being a current GPS unit rather than the 2004 Garmin? GPS for business. I love that. Linda Ann, let's go for you. Um, I realize that your example of a structural engineering firm is is just a, a an example. I have worked for an ex, with a structural engineering firm, however, and um, and so the challenge is is still a, a mental challenge where people have to be willing to reflect. And if you can't get past that piece of it, where they're not willing to reflect and look inward. And at the processes, then nothing will change. And part of it is, and if I had to hear one more time, well, it's worked for 10 years, I would just like, you know, um, that isn't even viable anymore because there's so much evolution in the resources that we use. But I've seen it where even the, the softwares that they're using gets updates, gets new features that are supposed to enhance their ability to do things differently. And, and they don't take the time to get the people the training to do that. They don't get the time, take the time to look at how do we expand this utilization um, to be more cost effective, let alone go ahead and dismantle what we're already doing from the get-go, right? From, as Maria says, from from the the base, you know, that first principle thinking. And so I I still think it starts with the ability, the willingness to embrace change as part of your functionality as a business person. Do we do we have to ask that question in dollars and cents? I mean, does it have to be how much money are you losing by not adapting and changing? Is that the way to reach them? It would be if they have that data. You have to assume that they are collecting that data or analyzing that data. Even if they have the softwares, again, to have the resources to give it to them, if they're not pulling it out and they're not looking at it and they're not integrating it or into their thought processes, it's still not going to make a difference. So, (laughs) sorry, but is that HR's role? Like who's going to be looking up that data? Who's going to be doing that research? Is there someone in the organization already who could be doing it? Or is this time for me to pick up a phone and give somebody a call? So I actually did that. I gave them, I gave them information. I had done the industry analysis because it was a report. And so I, I read the report, right? Anyway, I gave them information that showed them that if they paid attention to this one metric, it would reap them, that particular company, a million dollars in profit, not revenue, profit. And they they ignored it. So, so so what do you do? I mean, do you just 
like shake your head. I'm not there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You start looking for a new job. That's what you do. (laughs) Um, I I mean, it's still that mentality. Do you not want to, do you not, it's, it's part of its ego, you know? Do I want to pick up something that that someone else told me and I wasn't the smartest person in the room at the time? You know, it's there's more to it than just how do we get people to embrace change? Yeah, as I've said before, you know, we're going to look back, you know, in five or 10 years from this point and we're going to see, you know, the trail to the future scattered with corpses of organizations who didn't adjust, who didn't change who didn't take the million dollar profit. Um, Campbell, let's go to you. Well, just a couple of thoughts. I mean, we're, and this is pretty basic, but we've been kind of dancing around just the idea of small iterative changes of, of instilling a value of continuous improvement in throughout the whole organization um, can be helpful. But, um, and so that way change is not as painful when it does come, if we're just making little adjustments um, and benefiting from the trajectory of those. But you have to have a system of feedback where the frontline worker is in communication. Now, I see one process that might can be improved. I don't know. I'm not familiar with structural engineering, but um, one of the people that I consult with regularly is a software engineer. And you know, three years into his career, he's having to decide whether he's going to go the management route or the programmer route. And why does that have to be a fork in the road? Because he's saying to himself, if I go the management route, I won't know what I need to know to manage the programmers. (laughs) And if I go the programmer route, I I won't ever get to be a manager. I I don't know. Maybe some of you guys have some uh, insight. Well, it looks like Linda Ann might have some. Let's go back to you. That's where, uh, and we've had this discussion before, where I encourage people to have a dual career ladder within their organization, right? Where you can be that project manager, that that task-oriented kind of person, and still advance without having to have those people skills or to to take on the responsibility of the people. And if you have the right people, you can be that leader, even though you're not firsthand digging into the dirt, right? So, but it's important to have those dual tracks be equitable so that people don't feel the only way to make more money or the only way to advance their career is to lead people when I don't want to lead people. (laughs) Does that answer your question or your you're okay. Um, <laughs> or if I use Jeremy's analogy, sometimes we need two ladders for those monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to make one comment though, and that is um, with regard to what Campbell was saying about the small iterative changes, iterative changes that is far more doable and um, achievable when you have a solid practice to begin with. If you've gone and cleaned house and now you're moving forward, those small changes to keep kind of like, like the maintenance changes are far easier to do than if you go, holy crap, we need to change from the first step, right? And, and Linda, and within the one of one of the articles, I can't remember which one for today. Uh, the bigger is in, in the beginning when company companies are smaller, agile. Usually, they, they mentioned you can look. Yeah, there's a problem or an issue. You can just walk 
or make a phone call. But as companies get bigger and bigger and bigger, of course, that's when all these standardized processes have to be come into place. And that's when things get a little hairy. I, in this article, this is a simple web link. It's in the, the chatter description. Tired of outdated processes in your organization. Here is a step-by-step guide to change and remove them. Actually, this is where I showed the, this was with the monkey example, but in it, the author, um, you know, good points for discussion. The five main disadvantages of having outdated processes are people lose motivation. Let me share my screen here. People lose motivation as old processes cause disappointment and stop people from doing their best work. Your best people leave because of frustration and you have trouble attracting the best talent. This reminds me of Linda Ann's comment earlier about technology. There's a nutty, another study I found that people are like, there is a, a correlation between people lose, leaving a company and outdated te- technology in that company because it just gets so frustrating. Number three here is politics and red tape. <laughs> Does that ever happen within an organization? Politics and red, t- and red tape increases as more people are required to do tasks which can be solved by efficient and new processes and tools. Lack of efficiency in what you do harms your productivity and increased waste. And then lastly, the disconnect between customer expectations and your level of service. For example, here, a customer expects you to have a chatbot or answer questions over social media while you you still want them to call or email you. And then moving on, because we always like, where do we start? How, if somebody's looking to improve these processes, where do you start? Here are four good questions. And the author states, these will empower you to deal with this situation powerfully. Simply think, what processes can be removed or no longer serve their purpose? Again, this is a nice starting point. Are people, this is very important. Are people rewarded or punished for following processes blindly? Do people have the discretion to question the existence of a process and use their judgment? Are you and your organization focusing on achieving excellence? Ooh, excellence rather than avoiding errors. This is where we get into the whole leadership versus management. Management is avoiding errors. Leadership is achieving excellence. So these are four good questions. You can write them down. If you answer yes, then challenge yourself. Yes, but how are we doing this? Are we doing this in the best possible way? How could we do it better? If the answer is no, what are the barriers? What are the challenges? Why aren't we doing it? Where is the red tape? How can we get past that red tape? And simply use these four questions to create a, a very simple outline of uh, who, what, when, where, how, how, why. There's some of them in there, Tom. There might be another one with it starts with a Q, I think. So again, it's a nice starting point, Tom. Uh, uh, well, let's go to Maria first, and, and and then I got some things I want to ask you. But Maria, let's go to you. So I was looking at those um, two lists that uh, Dr. Jeremy showed and, you know, to piggyback on what Linda Ann said about changes and system changes and and operational changes and and software and everything else. You know, the great resign has shown us, right, that um, people aren't staying long anywhere these days for many reasons, um, which is a big impactor on uh, projects going awry. You know, I, I think you know, as foolish as it may seem to some people, if you have the bandwidth to do it, I I really think that it would be a great time to have understudies um, at the table, if you will. So just like, you know, the the show must go on, right? Um, And if they're not at the table, have somebody align 
with what's going on so that if you do lose one of those key people, you can just, you know, pop somebody in and they're not going in blindly because number two on both those lists is very telling, right? Of people leaving because they're frustrated. Well, if you're not going to mitigate the frustration, then you have to at least be prepared for the, you know, for the person leaving. So if you're not going to, if you're not going to do things differently, then at least put yourself into a place where you can continue the work and have somebody stand by to do it, you know, and, and some people will come up with, I've had this come up with me, you know, I was the only one many, many years ago doing a particular task. And I said, you know, you really need to train somebody else to do this in the event that I'm no longer here. And they said, but we'll have to pay them more money. I said, well, you're going to pay more money in the long run if you have nobody to do the job because it's all going to fall behind. And, you know, that, you know, if that mentality is the mentality that they're working with, um, you know, to, to Linda Ann's example, why not take that million dollar in profit and and give it to the people who are doing the work as a bonus and keep them there and keep them happy? Yeah, that's a great thing. And Brendan, I'm so glad you have your hand up because we're going to go to you next. And I am sure that you have sat down with with companies and organizations and gone, I'm about to make you a million dollars in profit. And they've gone, nah. Uh, yeah, I definitely, when Linda Ann was talking about that, I definitely, when she's talking about ego and, and those types of things. Yeah, I mean, you, and, and you mentioned something, Linda Ann, that I really wanted to just philosophize, basically. Um, it's not a good idea because it wasn't for me. Um, and I wasn't the smartest room person in the room at that time. The smartest person in the room at that time would realize that that's a good idea and do it regardless of where it came from. Um, so ego really shouldn't play into that. Being the smartest person in the room is knowing that it's a good idea. Um, but something that Maria was just touching on in this, this whole idea of training that next person for those jobs, when I come into a lot of consulting engagements, we use the phrase, um, everyone goes so morose with these things. What happens if this employee were to, uh, something were to happen to them? So we, we, the phrase that we always use is, well, let's just say, uh, you know, Jason hits the lottery tomorrow and decides to leave and he doesn't want to come back. Um, he's not going to stick around for, you know, $50,000 when he's about to get $240 million. Um, So how are you then going to get the job done? So it's, it's actually addressing it, communicating it, that it's a real thing. Is, is important. And it, it, it leads into the whole idea of burnout. People leave because they're burnt out and they'd rather just do something that's, I see people leave jobs for less pay just because they're like, I'm just tired and I want to do something different. So, you know, definitely, but Linda Ann was right. When you can tie it back to money and even when you're saying a million dollars in profit, they still might not listen. Well, it's, so that takes me back to you, Jeremy, because... <laughs> And, you know, that's the frustration. And I, you know, with, with the growth of the work cookie podcast, you know, we know that it's not just HRs and IOs who are listening to these recordings. Uh, and we know that, you know, we're, work cookie is what, like in the top 10% of all shared podcasts, therefore, you know, <laughs> they're giving those podcasts, they're sending those links to their leaders. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of people who are getting the message, but, you know, I know if I go into, into an organization that is in trouble and I 
present what IOs can do, what CBOC can do for an organization, uh, they're going to go, oh, yeah, that's nice. Or if I sit down with them and go, you know, unless you change, you're going to keep losing employees. Their mindset is, well, like, we'll just hire somebody else. Like, they don't really want to deal with this and make the work and the, and the life at work better. And as I think it was Brendan said, you know, sometimes it's a lot of ego. So do I need to deflate those egos? The interesting thing with with consulting as an external consultant versus being within a company is you usually, again, usually when somebody hires an external consultant and they're working with them or, or speaking with them, at least they want, they, they're, they're searching for that. They, they've hit a pain point enough so that they want strategic advice. And sometimes, I mean, I've had people say, I just want you to tell me what to do, which, you know, I, I don't do that, <laughs> but I, I give suggestions and recommendations based on, so but they 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 usually they seem open to it. The question then becomes how, because they've realized they've hit this difference between they've realized they're in a state of what we call you know misery. They've realized how the future could be, so they're in dissatisfaction with their current state. Thus, they're motivated to change, and then that means that they're willing and open. Then it becomes how do I do it? How do I get the buy-in? And uh, so, in terms of yeah, I think especially with external consultants, we we can be a little more abrasive. Usually I say in the beginning, you know, we work out a communication pledge or a psychological contract with your contact people within the organization. One of the first things I say is, you know, for example, what if I go around and I, I speak to the employees and <clears throat> do you want me to if what if the problem is you? Do you want me to be brutally honest? And Tom, you've heard me say this, and they say, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, or no, I said, do you want me to be honest with you? They say, oh yeah, yeah. And I say, do you want me to be brutally honest? They they sit back, oh, because oh, they know it's going to hurt, and they have they they say yes, you know, all the time they say yes, but that's important, and that's your, you know, it's like a, it's a psychological contract of look, I'm I'll be straight with you because that's why you're you've hired me, that's why you've entrusted me as a strategic advisor. The difficulty is when you're in the workplace, you have power games, you have politics, you have all these things. You don't want to, people don't want to give away power. People don't want to say that's a good idea if they don't like the, so then you have all these other factors involved. And again, I'll go back to those episodes that I mentioned for the work cookie podcast, building influence in the workplace, getting buy-in, creativity, innovation, because there's other good information there on how to manage those particular relationships. I had, man, full of analogies today, uh, I had a, uh, working with a client. They mentioned how it was getting dip people difficult. People were leaving on this particular team, and they were leaving because of these outdated processes that really just didn't make any sense. And the analogy they provided was: if our job is to build a gas station in the middle of the nowhere, of no, just the middle of nowhere, just all they want is a gas station. That's the goal. That's the deliverable. Because of the processes, they would have to go and build an entire community. Schools, churches, community centers, roads, stoplights, everything else, then put the gas station in it and then remove everything to, to, and then have just the gas station. So it, it helps to get to change our perspective with these particular analogies because this is what employees are, these are what employees are saying. This is what the research says. And these are all good analogies to get us thinking in different ways of not only how can we look at what we have in terms of our processes, but also how can we use these analogies, storytelling pictures when we're trying to get our ideas through to others in the workplace? How can you start to use vivid imagery 
which is important because we not only have to say, what are the processes that are, uh, that are outdated? We might have to use these, this kind of imagery to even get people in a room together to be able to accept the question of what processes are outdated or those three to five questions that were posed earlier from that particular uh, article we were looking at. You know what I need is a, is a book. I need a book of IOs talking about their experiences and how they solve those issues. We might, Tom, have to do something about that. We might. I love the tease. We might have to do something about that. If you're listening, stay tuned. Uh, Laura, let's go to you. Hey, I just had a thought based off of what Jeremy was just mentioning. And because our February series of conversations were all about learning organizations, and that was one of the big things I took away when I studied learning organizations in my graduate internship was the idea of when you're looking at processes and changes, pulling in people at different levels. And I think the importance of getting like a 360 degree we talk about with feedback, but what about when you're changing processes, when you're looking at new processes? And I remember t- sitting through uh, Lean Six Sigma classes. I've never been certified myself, but sitting through classes and they talk about how do you come up with creative solutions? Like how do you solve problems in creative ways? And that's one of the things that I feel like in blending the two things together, people kind of take for granted is Maybe people who aren't involved in that process should be brought into the conversation about how do you come up with new ways to fix a problem or deal with a problem? How do you get that buy-in and that for a change in one way is by letting people have say in the change, right? So that was kind of the light bulb I had as I was listening to Jeremy. (laughs) That's that's a nice shiny light bulb. Um, But let me ask you, Laura, because in your experience, something that Campbell said is, you know, when we bring consultants in, when we, you know, start to look at these things, the group that usually gets left out are the frontline workers, the people who are actually, you know, dealing with this day to day. So do you find in that training that they encourage, you know, the multiple levels of communication, you know, not only talking to people who may not be directly um, influenced by the changes, but may have something to say, but what about those frontline workers that are going to be involved every single day? Did they get involved or are they still sort of pushed to the side? So as one of my previous coworkers would say, I've slept since then. So my memory might be a little fuzzy, but when I, I remember from the literature on learning organizations, I basically had to write like a literature review during my internship on the topic. So there's a lot of reading, but there, there is more of that push for incorporating frontline and different levels, looking at things more horizontally rather than just looking uh, vertically in an org chart. But from my memory of like the Lean Six Sigma class and those types of more business-oriented classes, I don't remember the frontline workers being brought into the conversation or kind of reminded to bring those individuals into the work. That doesn't mean it isn't, and it could be very dependent on the person who's teaching it. Um, And it could also be a failure of my memory at the time, right? Um, But I think that's an important piece for sure in working through this and making sure you have those frontline workers. And at least from my experience in dealing with change initiatives, I feel like that's usually where a lot of the failure 
comes from is they weren't included in the design process and the expectation that you can just tell them I've done all this work and hand it to them and they should just follow along rather than getting their feedback before implementation. Yeah. And I've been the person who's been handed that package and goes like, why on earth would you not talk to me? Uh, Campbell, (laughs) Campbell, let's go to you. Yes. The voice of the frontline worker is really, really valuable. Um, I do a lot of exit interviews in my current job and I talk to a lot of washing machine repairmen um, who say, I'm the one that has contact with the customer. They need to listen to me. Um, And so it's really, it can be hard to capture. Um, There are ways that you can do it. Just a simple suggestion box, be it virtual or, or physical, but um, you just need to get creative in how to capture that voice and, and code it (laughs) for results. Yeah. It's hard to be that frontline person and, you know, be that wash, washer repairman and, People are asking you questions and you can't answer them because no one upstairs will give you those answers. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you. Yeah, I'm a big um, proponent of the the frontline involvement. And I forget what the name of it is. There's a book out that uh, that documents kind of Toyota's process, you know, and how they revolutionized the automotive industry about because they were listening to the frontline um, workers and it made such a huge difference. And to me, you know, the fastest way to non-compliance is to give them something to do that doesn't make any sense, that makes their job harder. It doesn't make any sense in what they're supposed to be doing, right? It's like, what the heck is this? And so uh, I think that, again, it goes to some of your leadership styles in, on two fronts. One, are you in touch regularly with your frontline people? Who's talking to them on a regular basis and checking in? And asking them, you know, what's in your way? And then the other thing is talking to your clients. So they both, and I've done both touch points and you can do all kinds of research, but if you are listening to just those comments, you'll end up in the same place as the research most most times. Um, so if you just listen to people, um, whether it's your clients or whether it's your employees, uh, and then act on it, Boy, you can save yourself a lot of heartache. Yeah. And and just because you can speak the language does not mean you are communicating when your lips are moving. Uh, Maria, let's go to you. Um, so Linda Ann mentioned a, a little bit of what I was going to say, but, you know, she talked about the gentleman who was trying to decide which track to take, the management track or the other track. And, you know, Linda's sound advice of always setting yourself up for more than one track because you just never know where you're going to end up. But I think managers, especially managers who, and again, I I have, you know, four decades of, of healthcare, but no private industry um, history behind me. So I've always worked for nonprofits, but large nonprofits stay and local government as well. But I think what I see is that managers are not only managing people, they're managing operations. And depending on what level of management they're at, how large the venue of management they are dealing with is, something's always going to be compromised. And some of these managers are not taught how to manage people or vice versa. You know, they aren't savvy enough to know that both areas need the assistance. And and I think there's also a disservice done to managers in the sense that there really isn't a lot of great um, middle management um, journal, you know, um, 
information for people at different levels of management, you know, that are at a point where you have someone who was a front desk, you know, staff, let's say, and they moved up to management. So their experience, they were ideal in their, you know, old job. Now they're a manager. Um, They can probably do a good job if they have some insight, but there's nothing to refer them to other than you can do this. This is, you know, you did a great job in your last position and I know you're going to do a great job in this position and I'm here to support you. You know, that is great if you have that support, but the fact of the matter is your leadership puts you in that position because they need you to oversee that position. So I think, you know, there's also an opportunity, right. For us to be writing something for managers, Jeremy, maybe we can just turn into a, you know, a publishing um, (laughs) uh, organization, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for providing resources to middle managers, you know, even at the, you know, at, at any industry so that they can learn that they may not have to touch everybody, but they do have to find a way that everybody gets touched. Yeah. There really is an epidemic of people being promoted and then not actually being given any type of leadership training. Um, and it is causing huge issues. Um, the, the, the school of osmosis is incredibly crowded. It, it very much is, and they give degrees really easily. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you. I just want to uh, respond to to Maria's comment there about you know mid mid level uh, leadership people working doing both the operations work and the leadership piece, and that's where and especially without training what happens is they tend to lead the people the way that they lead the projects and if you lead your people the way you lead projects you're probably not going to end up with the result that you were hoping for because they're very different skill sets yeah they they certainly are um and you think that's like that's what's going on in the world of work these days is is leaders are are treating people like projects um laura let's go back to you I just had a thought slash question based off of um, Campbell's comment about I feel like there's a lot of things listed for like leadership and leadership development and things like that. But there's not a whole lot that I see listed directly for middle management. And maybe it's a miscommunication, misunderstanding thing that maybe the middle managers don't take the leadership because they assume it doesn't apply to them. They're not CEOs. And so finding that um, maybe it's it's a, a marketing communication issue as much as lack of publication. I don't know. I've not looked into middle management training stuff. So maybe there is stuff labeled it. I don't know. That was just kind of my thought bubble. (laughs) Um, I think it's a great thought. Um, But I do think there is people out there who just assume that leadership, it's like osmosis. Like (laughs) I'm promoting you because you're good at what you do. And therefore, well, you must, must have some leadership skills. Uh, And Manny, welcome back. Let's go to you. Hey, thank you. I think um, a thought came across my mind when Maria was talking and then she said, um, I think it was more like validation, validating the leaders as well, the managers as well. Because um, I somehow kind of realized um, most of them also kind of like be on pressure to deliver somehow. And I just noticed it with my one of my supervisors because they they think uh, like um, things like, What's it, when you kind of like tight mark on someone, what's it called? Um, when they micromanage you, they're trying to impress people above them so they can keep, you know, promoting them or getting these promotions and stuff. 
So I feel like it all is it's all gonna go back to emotional intelligence. These people just know that they're enough, but then also validating these leaders. Because I think we also had a topic that said um who motivates the leader now. Because in as much as we are all looking at these people, you know, to deliver with their employees, if they're still damaged, we are still not doing anything here at all. So I think I liked what um, Mario was saying, validating the people, you know, you're doing enough, you're doing everything right, rather than just putting them on pressure all the time, because it now feels like we are all going out. It almost feels like if it was just like in a normal life, it almost feels like we are trying to, it would feel like we're trying to attack them. And then they're also not, because when someone feels attacked, their whole learning armor just goes out of the window. So I feel like the more we are talking about this is also the more they're getting shut down. And then I think we need to find balance in this also with putting them in mind that they're also kind of like being challenged in my way. Yeah, good call. Uh, Campbell, let's go to you. No, and in, in talking about this middle management leadership development, I I was actually doing an exit interview with a, a worker who was a service technician. He was making about $9 an hour, but he had been in the military and he had seen uh, a good leadership development program. And I wanted to tell him, he laid out a, when I want the last question I asked him as sort of a catch all. It's what recommendations do you have for improvement? He laid out a brilliant plan for management development and, and supervisory training. Um, and I, I, I thought about all of our IOs in CBOC who are former military. And what I wanted to say to the guy, and I couldn't, I wanted to say, dude, you need to go get a master's in IO psychology and take this show on the road. Um, but, you know, he's happy in, in his new job. But um, I, I really think that we can learn a lot from those with military experience in this area. Yeah, they're always great to talk to. And they, you know, not only their IO expertise, but their life experience <laughs> is quite unique. Uh, well, Jeremy, we are almost done another hour here. We so are. And what's are, coming up? Yeah, so upcoming events. So um, next week, again, these are the free open mic events. We've got re refreshing job positions an outdated role. That's next Thursday, followed by on the 16th, re-engaging and refreshing your team. And on March 23rd, why your New Year's resolution didn't work, how to finally overcome that workplace challenge with workplace habits. And if you'd like to join one of our open mic events and you're listening to the podcast, just go to cbock.com slash events and we'd be happy to have you in any capacity we can, huh? And, and there are there are lots of things going on um, sort of behind the curtain right now with CBOC. Um, a lot of changes coming over the next few months, uh, a lot of new things coming along. Is there anything that we can talk about yet? Nope, that's why they're behind the curtain, Tom. <laughs> no, we, <laughs> we do have, I will say, stay tuned for something in August. That will be a blast. And stay tuned for more... If you like the Work Cookie podcast, stay tuned for bigger, can't say better, what's better than what us getting together, but more, let's say more of that. And um, uh, we'll leave that enough because you you placed a nice teaser in the middle of the podcast too. So yeah. there's just a couple of the things going on. Yeah. Yeah. Work Cookie is doing amazingly well. We're, we're going to do a little more baking maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's good. 
right. Well, Jeremy, with that, uh, our time is up. So if you want to count us out of here, we'll see everyone in one week's time. Amazing today, as always. Thank you, everyone. Counting out in five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? At seabock.com.